This is They Create Worlds, episode 96. Hello, Big Blue. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. First, we have a quick programming note that the big three-part episode is being released starting with the 15th of September into October. But of course, in a way, it's coming up much sooner than that because this year, as we've mentioned before, we're going to be recording all three at once and we are going to be sharing that recording process with you, the listener. Which is a lot like the editing process, but better, because we're adding all of the flubs, dubs, and weirdness instead of removing them. Yeah, so that ought to be a fun little stream. And when can people uh, watch this fun little stream, Jeff? Yes, that episode will be recorded August 24th at 11 o'clock Central U.S. time. For those of you who have no clue what that correlates to in your local time zone... That should be going on at 4 p.m. Universal Coordinated Time. And we will be getting with the hip platforms that all the kids use today. No, I'm not talking about TikTok. We're not that hip. What's TikTok? I rest my case. (laughs) But last time we did it, we did it on YouTube for reasons that I really can't defend. So moving on. Uh, This time... This time... (laughs) (laughs) i broke my co-host but this time we will be streaming this live on our brand new twitch channel that we have just signed up for and uh, what is that channel jeffrey tcw podcast big surprise there (laughs) Absolutely. So yeah, if you tune in on Saturday, uh, August the 24th, you can watch live as we record that episode. Uh, We do try to interact with the people a little bit as well. We can't do quite as much give and take, obviously, as a game stream on Twitch because we are actually trying to record something that will then actually be a podcast. But we're always happy for people to type in, and if people have questions uh, or comments, we will uh, occasionally deign to read those on the air and interact with them. So it should be a fun time uh, for anyone that wants to tune in for uh, a minute or an hour or five years, however long it takes us to record it. Probably more like five years. (laughs) But I will be monitoring the chat, since Alex tends to do most of the talking in these episodes. So I'll be monitoring the chat and uh, things that seem to be pertinent to... Whatever's going on, I will pass along to Alex. Absolutely. But now on to the main episode. Last time we looked at Little Blue, which started off as a scam company with a really atrocious name. It then grew into a tabulation business that made money hand over fist in the Great Depression. Practically the only company that did. Finally, they were able to embrace what they would become to be known to the world at large. Computers. And not just any computer, a big blue computer. That's right. You had a company that really never should have existed, never had a real purpose to exist, 
and was just there so that everyone could basically scam stockholders and make a little of that internet money before you had the internet. And then suddenly it became IBM. It became Big Blue. It became the dominant company, first in electromechanical tabulating machines and then in computers, particularly low to mid-range computer systems with the launch of the IBM 1401, which is where we ended the story last time, right at the end of the 1950s. Okay, so IBM has dominated the market. They control mainframes. They control computing by and large as far as the United States and large portions of the world are concerned. So they decided to make a personal computer version, right? Well, yes, but we're not quite there yet. We're not. We've left off at the end of the 1950s. Oh, right. Personal computing is a couple of decades away still. So we got those 60s and 70s to deal with. Right. And there are really two big things in the 60s and 70s. We're not going to go in depth on every little thing that ever happens at IBM because we are a history of video gaming podcast, not a technology history or computer history podcast. But the two big things that really happened in the 60s and 70s and that really do have some bearing on where IBM ultimately went with the uh, PC in the 1980s, which is why it's worth talking about this, even from a computer game perspective, is that they endeavored to create the world's first true computing platform. Talk about what I mean by that in a moment. And as a result of creating this platform, they became subjected to a very long, drawn-out, and painful antitrust litigation. Oh, right. The U.S. was still in the we-don't-like-trust things. Yes. Now, we talked about how IBM had involved in that before. They had government trouble with antitrust in the 30s. They had trouble again in the 50s. Both times were created to their old tabulating machine business, where they were truly, truly dominant, much more so than they were dominant in computers in this early period. Those were annoying But particularly the one in the 1950s, not so much the one in the 1930s, Tom Watson Jr. knew that his company was about to pivot into computing, because you may recall that we said that Tom Watson Jr. was very interested in getting the company into computing and moving them there. So that wasn't too concerning. Yeah, they did a consent decree. Yeah, they had to be kind of careful from that point forward to make sure that they didn't too aggressively enter new markets or too aggressively corner markets. Because once the government kind of has your eye on you, it's like the eye of Sauron. It's like once the government fixes their eye on you, they're kind of always there hovering in the background, always kind of watching you, even if they're not actively coming after you. I'm not making any kind of political statement with that. I'm just saying that that's kind of the way the world works. Still, it was electromechanical equipment. It was tabulating equipment. Who cares? We're going on to computers. This would be far more serious because this next antitrust thing would be all about the computer business. But before we get to the antitrust case, we have to discuss the situation that got them into an antitrust situation, and that was the creation of the first true computing platform, which was the IBM System 360. I forget which episode it was, but I know we talked about this a little bit in one of our other episodes. But we'll repeat it here because it's important to what we're talking about today. So these days, we kind of think of the computing market in terms of mainframes, mini computers, microcomputers, right? 
Not that anyone's really using my uh, mini computers anymore, but that's kind of the three categories that emerged by the late 70s, early 80s, right? Yeah. So that whole mainframe segment, though, was really not kind of this monolithic block mainframe segment that that makes it sound like, just as microcomputers have many different ranges of power, price, capability, etc. So too do mainframes. And we talked a little bit in the last episode about how the 1401 computer that the company introduced, the last one we talked about, the one largely responsible for their domination and for that big blue nickname, was really serving your low-end customer. Now, computers are expensive back then, so even your low-end customer is paying a lot of money to lease your computer, thousands upon thousands of dollars a month. But this was the computer that was really serving the people that were basically just doing some of the stuff the tabulating machines used to do, basic entry-level data processing, where you have to run a lot of cards, a lot of punch cards, a lot of information through the machine, but the machine's not doing anything terribly too complicated with it in terms of calculations. Then kind of the next tier up from that, what we kind of classically think of as being mainframes today. The big calculating thinking machines that are helping run big banks, that are helping do calculations at major universities, kind of your classic conception of the mainframe. And IBM had its, uh, by this point, 7,000 series of computers that was kind of inhabiting this area, this kind of broad middle ground. And then at the very high end, you had what we would call today supercomputers. And IBM was never as strong in supercomputers. We talked about that last time. Controlled Data Corporation really kind of found its niche by taking that really high-end market. And these are just computers that just work blazingly fast for the time. Your phone can probably outdo them. Uh, The LCD display on your printer can probably outdo them today. I don't know. But (laughs) at the time, you know, these were supercomputers. And of course, the concept of the supercomputer still exists today. They're just many, many, many times more powerful than they were in the 1960s. Now, when you had an IBM 1401 at the low end, and you had an IBM 7090 at the mid end, and you had IBM's attempts at supercomputers at the high end, these are all different computers. The architectures are completely different. The CPUs are completely different. And by CPU, we're not talking microprocessor. This is pre-microprocessor day. We're talking about all the circuits that together all the form a central processing unit, all the different boards, PC boards that form a CPU. The CPUs are completely different. The architectures are completely different. The Software is being written pretty much entirely in machine language or assembly language. High-level programming languages do exist. IBM actually created the very first high-level programming language in 1956, a little thing called Fortran. Everyone loves Fortran. (laughs) Right. And by love, I mean hate. (laughs) Yeah, how much programming gets done in Fortran today? Yeah. (laughs) Well, surprisingly a lot, and that's because of these older mainframes. So there's actually a problem where all of these old banking and financial systems still run on a lot of these old Fortran-coded systems. Right. And IBM actually has newer mainframes they provide, but they run really complicated emulators to 
exactly match all the quirks and oddities of the older systems so that all of the software works properly and you don't have any kind of weird financial glitches. And there's a yep. ever decreasing number of elder coders who know how Fortran works really well, especially on these systems. And since they're so niche, they're paid a lot of money to stay <laughs> here and maintain this software for us so our financial industry doesn't collapse. <laughs> exactly. But I just meant in the terms of the whole mass of, of people programming today, <laughs> many more people using C, Ruby, Java, Python than <laughs> are doing anything in Fortran. But yes, it does still exist. It is still used. IBM mainframes are still used. But, you know, Fortran isn't really being, and COBOL and ALGOL and the early programming languages aren't being used to do most of the software because it's just faster to use machine language and assembly language. On more modern computers, that speed differential is kind of offset by the increasing amount of memory you have to take care of things. But back then, with memory being a premium, it made a whole lot more sense to just do machine language, assembly language. So the software for all of these computers is incompatible. The peripherals are also incompatible. You don't have the concept of universal interfaces, plug-and-play, platform-agnostic drivers, whatever else. Your printer for your IBM 1401 computer will not work with your IBM 7090 computer. Your tape drive or your hard drive or your disk drive that you have bought for your 1401 computer will not work with your 7090 computer. So these are all different platforms. So that's why I'm talking about a unified computer platform. Every single individual computer, even computers within the same line, other computers in the 7000 series, the 7090 was the most popular one, but there were others in that line too. Other computers in that line were not compatible with each other. Nothing was compatible. And if you are an older gamer who got the joys of IRQ Hell, which was trying to make all the pretty system stuff work together, especially back in the 80s and 90s, this is that nightmare taken to the nth degree. Truly, truly. So if you were a small organization for which a 1401 computer was more than sufficient to do anything you needed it to do, and then within five years you grow into a much bigger organization and you need a computer that has a lot more power, like a 7090, you're starting over from scratch. You have to learn a whole new system. You need all new software. A lot of software in this period, software was considered in this period a service. Software was not a commodity that you went out and bought. You didn't go out and buy Microsoft Access for the IBM 7090. No, if you needed a database, it was probably going to be something very specifically tailored to your exact line of business. And you would tell your IBM sales guy and your IBM field engineer while you were closing your deal. It's like, okay, if we take your computer, we're going to need a database that keeps track of this kind of stuff that can perform this kind of organization. And you need to provide us with that. And IBM would create a software program that was, generally speaking, tailored for you. They had some generic software in their catalog as well, of course. But software was a service. It was not a commodity. So if you changed to a different computer, 
you had to redo all the software, much of which was custom. It's not like you could just go to the 7090 catalog now and say, I'll take one of those, one of those, one of those, or go to Mr. Third-Party Software Developer, which literally did not exist back then, and say, you, give me one of those and one of those. That's a big hassle. And as the market continues to segment, as you get more steps along this chain from low-end systems to high-end systems, the more fragmentation you have of this entire computer market, the more you have to keep track of, you know, and the amount of peripherals you have to build and keep track of as IBM itself grows exponentially. The amount of software you're having to make for people grows exponentially. It's just a mess. On top of that, IBM has two R&D groups that kind of don't like each other very much. I mean, it's not warfare in the streets kind of dislike, but they're both very certain that they are the one true way forward. You had the original R&D operation in Indicott, which had been established by Tom Watson Sr. back in the 20s or early 30s. Early 30s, I think, is when it actually opened the facility in Indicott that had been all in on the electromechanical tabulating equipment. They were kind of slow to embrace electronic technology, and they were slow to embrace computer technology. But once they started gravitating towards first vacuum tubes and then transistors, they started integrating those first into the electromechanical tabulating machines to make electronic tabulating machines, and then created the low-end computers, the 650 and the 1401. So these were kind of the working class computers and considered kind of the technologically boring computers, but they were the computers that were making all the money because first the 650 and then the 1401, because they were so much cheaper, they were the ones that were really driving volume sales. Then you had the Poughkeepsie R&D facility, Poughkeepsie, New York. Endicott's also in New York. This facility was specifically established near the end or right after World War II it became the haven for the young guns, the new engineers that were joining the company in the wake of the conclusion of the war. These were guys that were fresh out of university that had learned about the advances in solid state, particularly we're talking vacuum tubes at this time, and were eager to start building more technologically impressive machines. So they were doing the big stuff. They were doing the 701, the 702, the 7090, the supercomputer work. That was kind of the glitzy new hotness, and they were kind of the ones that were considered more cutting edge. Both of them are kind of fighting with each other to be kind of the dominant vision of what IBM computing is. And this fight is threatening to further fragment the product line in ways that are not really helpful to the overall IBM uh, picture. So Tom Watson Jr., makes a very bold decision that IBM is going to unify its entire product line via a single platform. From the very low end to the very high end, everything will be compatible. Different systems will have different levels of power, they'll have different amounts of memory, but they will all be part of one line. So when you move from the low-end system to the mid-tier system, now you don't have to switch out all your peripheral devices. Now you don't have to make all new software. Everything's going to be compatible. That's really what we think of as a computer today. 
you don't think for a second when you decide that your PC has become too weak to run the latest stuff. You know, it's like, okay, well, my processor is still fine, but my video card won't run the latest games anymore. I'll just go out, buy a new video card, plug that in. And that works because it's all one platform. You don't even think about it today. But until IBM took this step with the System 360 in the early 1960s, that was just not a thing in computing. I mean, it truly is revolutionary. It's akin to how a person or an entity has enough clout in order to dictate the way things go. In today's parlance, Google would be the equivalent of this with IBM and saying, hey, the internet needs to abandon Flash. We are going to say unilaterally, we're stopping using Flash. (laughs) Right. By right of doing that, they sort of help direct the entire market towards an end, towards a goal. Whether or not that's good or bad is not for us to say. Right, right, exactly. That's sort of akin to how it was back in the day with IBM, where they had so much power, so much clout that they could say, all right, we need to do something better just for the entire industry to move forward. We are going to say unilaterally that everything will be this way and no two ways about it. Exactly. I mean, it really wasn't something that they had to sell to their customers. They really had to sell it within IBM (laughs) because they had these two competing labs and they both wanted to move forward. There were two very important things he did. First, he appointed a fantastic executive named Ben Learson. Vincent was his full name, but he went by Ben. As a group vice president who was kind of placed over both of these R&D divisions, which were called the Data Systems Division and the General Products Division. What Vin Learson did is he started cross-promoting people. So if there was somebody in one of those two divisions that didn't agree with the unification of the whole product line, he would take someone from the other division and promote him and make him that other guy's boss in the other division. And then the person that had the objection, their objection would be overruled because their boss was on board with it. He was very good at shuffling people around because as a group vice president, he had a lot of authority. He shuffled people around so that finally he had executives in both divisions that were on board. The other important thing that happened is that, quite frankly, the 1401 and its successor, the 1410, which was backwards compatible with the 1401, those two systems were compatible. They were super popular, and selling the idea of the System 360 was probably not going to work if the 1401 situation was not addressed. And so what IBM did is what I believe is the very first example, and if it's not the very first example, it's at least one of the very first examples of microcode emulation. They actually figured out how to emulate a 1401 in software in a System 360 to maintain compatibility with 1401 software and peripherals that were already out in the field. And the maintenance nightmare begins. <laughs> right, but I mean, it was, it was a truly novel solution to the problem because, again, emulation is so common today. I mean, we're emulating things all the time. We have emulators inside our emulators emulating other things. But nobody had emulated one computer in software inside another computer before. 
I mean, that was also a truly revolutionary step that they took, and it helped make this whole thing work because it meant 1401 customers could comfortably migrate to the new System 360. So they're working on this full range of computers. I think there are five of them by the end, all under the arch of the System 360 designation. They have individual model numbers that reference the level of power and price they have, but it's all System 360. The final thing that they have to figure out is how do they introduce these things? Because the problem is, if you announce a complete new product line all at once that's going to replace everything that you do, it immediately kills every product you currently have on sale. So that's a problem, especially if you're not sure that you can get the full range all ready to launch at the exact same time. But even if you do get them all ready to launch at the exact same time, your customers aren't necessarily going to want to all buy at the exact same time. And, you know, you kind of create a mess. You're killing your entire product line in one fell swoop. So do you kind of play it coy and introduce a model one at a time and slowly bring this thing all in so that your customers gradually become acclimated to the new thing? Or do you say to hell with it, throw them all out there at once and, uh, you know, damn the consequences? IBM was inclined to be cautious. But then Honeywell, one of the so-called seven dwarves that were competing with IBM in the mainframe computer space, released what they called the H200, which was essentially a clone of the 1401. It was compatible with 1401 software. So now it's like, oh, crap. They're going to come and start stealing our low-end business right now. This is real. Not a hypothetical. It's common. Damn the consequences! So in early 1964, they just say, okay, here it is. System 360. It completely takes over the market. I mean, IBM is already the leader, right? I mean, they're already, they already have probably two-thirds-ish of the mainframe market. And they really get there because they have really good salesmen who are really good at meeting customer needs. And they have the best service organization in the entire business. So you know that when you buy an IBM computer, you're never going to have to worry. They'll always come in there with the software you need. They'll always come in there with the repairs you need. They're always going to be listening to you about improvements, upgrades. That's how they built this thing. So they've already got that. But now that they have this platform, this universal computing platform that companies know they can grow into as their computing needs increase without all of those headaches, that just cements the deal. They sell tens of thousands System 360 systems, and they end up with about 80% of the mainframe computer market. They get Japan levels of acceptance. They really do. You know, the, the old adage goes, you know, from back in the day used to go that nobody ever got fired for buying IBM. You can take a chance on the new guy and maybe it blows up in your face. Or you can just bring in the same old reliable products that you've been bringing in for years, if not decades at a certain point, And you know that they're going to work and you know that you'll be fine. <laughs> you're going to have the support. You're going to have the knowledge. You're going to have everything work. There's probably going to be an issue of it's going to cost more compared to the competitor, but you're paying more for that reliability and consistency. Exactly. You really are. 
There were unintended consequences, though, that I'm not even sure IBM was really aware of, because this is the first time there's been a universal computing platform. So it's just the kind of things you don't necessarily think about. It opened the market to a couple of different things. First, it opened the market to manufacturers of peripheral devices. Back in the day when computer models and computer needs were changing all the time and everything was not compatible with each other, there was no business, really, in making a hard drive, making a printer, because you might put a product out and then a year later, two years later, that product's no longer any good. And because a company like IBM is secretive about what their next product to be developed is, it's not like you can have an R&D operation going to create the next thing. You have to wait until IBM has a product out before you can create a peripheral that works with it because they're not going to partner with you. There's no real business model in making peripheral devices for computers. Well, when you have a universal standard that you know is not going to change for years and years and years, now you can have peripheral manufacturers, hard drive manufacturers, printer manufacturers, tape drive manufacturers, whatever. So IBM lost some of that market because, of course, these companies that are dedicated to the peripheral business can undercut IBM on price. And since they're focused specifically only on those peripherals and putting all of their engineering talent into maximizing the effectiveness of those peripherals, they can also produce, you know, theoretically a superior product. So the first peripheral manufacturers come in that cut into IBM's business a little bit. I mean, IBM's crying all the way to the bank, but uh, I mean, they're, they're making billions. They're not hurting from this, but it's something they didn't realize they were going to give up a part of the market on. It's also what eventually allows the beginning of the third-party software industry to start developing. Because now you have a common operating environment and a common operating system. The System 360 does have an OS. So, again, you have a common environment that you know is not going to change. And so a third party can create a database program. A third party can be reasonably confident that that program is going to be viable for several years. So it kind of opens up the beginning of a software industry as well. These are good things for the computing industry as a whole, but for IBM, they're unintended consequences. The big ones, though, are that it opens up the market to cloners and leasers. Again, since you have a standard that you know is not going to change, it makes economic sense to study the 360, reverse engineer the 360, and create a compatible clone of the 360 and then undercut IBM on price. Just like you had PC compatibles, which of course we'll be talking about in more detail in a little bit here, even today. Of course, everything's technically a PC compatible today since IBM's not in the PC business anymore. <laughs> um, you had 360 compatibles back in the 1960s. So they lost a little bit of the market to clone makers coming in on their business, particularly on the low end of the market. You also had leasing companies spring up. I'm not exactly sure how this works. You know, we talked about how IBM leased computers. They did not sell them. That remained true in the System 360 era. I haven't looked into it closely enough to understand where the leasing companies got their computers from. I mean, I think they did get them from IBM directly. I'm just not exactly sure what the arrangement was. But basically, you would have companies that would get equipment from IBM, get computers from IBM, and then lease those computers to businesses. 
they're doing the same thing that IBM's doing, but because they have a smaller overhead, they don't have R&D costs, et cetera, et cetera, they can offer a cheaper leasing rate than IBM can offer. So by creating a platform, they also opened up their computers to other people, other companies. That makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. Of course, the other consequence of this, which is a logical consequence, is that their platform is now the dominant platform, just as Microsoft Windows was, say, the dominant platform in the 1990s yep, and still is today. So that kind of gets people's attention. People like the government. Who has already has the eye of Sauron of, <laughs> are you doing something nefarious there, IBM? Hmm, 90% of the market. Hmm. Now, IBM knew that they were probably going to have a problem. And they actually took some proactive steps to try to address this. They figured their real problem was going to come through software bundling. As I said, in the vast majority of cases, software was free. Now, obviously, when IBM was computing the cost to lease an IBM computer, they were factoring into that lease their software development costs so that they could make a profit. But you bought the hardware platform. You got the software with the hardware platform. And they figured that probably the main place where they were going to get scrutiny was in the fact that the software was bundled with the hardware, which kind of strangled competition in that segment of the market. It's very similar to what happened to them in tabulators. One of the things that got them in trouble with tabulators was that IBM tabulator companies were locked into using IBM manufactured punched cards because those were the only ones that would work. They decided in, I think, 1968, somewhere around there, to unbundle software, which is a huge watershed in the computer industry. There were already a couple of independent software companies even before unbundling, companies that focused on making really highly specific customized products. but unbundling, by which we mean that your lease was only for the hardware. And now the software catalog, instead of just having a list of programs where you'd say, give me one of those, one of those, and two of those, now has prices next to everything. You're buying your software separate from your hardware. But it does give them a measure of deniability as far as the government's concerned and say, hey, we're charging for the software separately. If Mr. Customer wants to go over to Joe's Software Shack and buy equivalent software, it's going to work on our system. We don't care. Exactly. And they hoped that would be enough, but it didn't turn out to be. And, you know, part of this is because of a kind of peculiar view of the computer market. Whether you decided to interpret the computer market narrowly or broadly. Because, like we said, they had about 80% of the mainframe market. But by 1969, which is the year that the Justice Department does its thing, the mainframe computer market is not the entire computer market anymore. You have many computers. You have other specialized control systems. You have, you know, various real-time computers used in control functions. You have many computers meant for use by a small number of people. You have the time-sharing market that's beginning to develop. And IBM isn't the company that ends up being the dominant force in time-sharing. 
you have other computer markets that are opening up where IBM is really not in at all. IBM never really manages to get into the mini computer market in a successful way. So their kind of argument is, well, look, Digital Equipment Corporation over here is making lots of money on mini computers. Our domination of the mainframe market has not stopped them from making lots of money in mini computers. And look, there's CDC. Okay, admittedly, CDC's profits are nowhere near as big as ours, or their revenues are nowhere near as big as ours. But people still consider them the gold standard in supercomputers. Even though the 360 is meant to, to reach that high, CDC has still got the big guns there. So they're making money in a segment of the market that we are unable to dominate. We are not dominating the whole computer market. These companies over here are making peripherals for our 360. Maybe they're small fries compared to us in terms of what they're making, but we have not chased them out of the peripheral market. They are making money. Please don't break us up. Yeah, but uh, basically the government's like, but you control 80% of the mainframe market. That means you can control everything. But it's like IBM was really pushing for a broad interpretation of what the computer market was. And the Justice Department decided to take a very narrow view. The case dominates IBM for over a decade. It is the longest antitrust litigation in the history of the United States. The Johnson administration files the case on literally the last day they are in office. January the 17th, 1969. Inauguration day is the 20th, but there's a weekend. The, that, the 20th is a Monday. So the 17th, the Friday, is literally the last day <laughs> they can really do this because they know that the Nixon administration coming in, their Republican administration, they're more business-friendly. They probably wouldn't do anything. But once the wheels are turning, the Nixon administration's kind of stuck with it because you don't want the government to look that wishy-washy. So it begins in 1969. It is not ended until 1982. One litigation. That is an epic level of arguing back and forth with lawyers. It's not the longest tech case in history. That, I think, honor still goes to the very famous Intel versus AMD case over microprocessors. But uh, in terms of government antitrust litigation in any field, not just technology, that is the longest lasting antitrust case ever. And of course, the government started investigating them even a year or two before that, you know, before the case was formally filed. So this was a thing. And I mean, there was a lot that went on in that period. Tens of thousands of pages of depositions, hundreds of witnesses. It consumes IBM. For that decade. Their legal department like quadruples or quintuples in size. The fees they're spending on legal stuff are just getting out of this world. They're also hit with a lot of individual suits, private lawsuits from companies that are kind of jumping on the bandwagon and sensing blood in the water and so start suing individually for unfair competition. Of course, the tragic thing about all of this is I'm not a specialist in trust law, but it really was a case of dubious merit because there was a thriving computer market that was not IBM. I mean, it's, it's not like, for instance, say the Microsoft case. I mean, yeah, with the bundling of Internet Explorer and uh, Microsoft, they could argue, 
well, there's other operating systems out there and there's other web browsers out there. But they really did at that time control basically the entire OS market and the entire web browser market. IBM was big in mainframes, but there was a lot more competition that was being very successful by doing computers in areas that IBM just wasn't or that IBM wasn't very good at. So the case finally ends with the government deciding to drop it. Now, part of that is politics. 1982 is after the Reagan administration has come to power, and the Reagan administration is very pro-business. So, you know, that helped them. But, you know, it was always going to be a bit of a tough sell to say that they were really violating antitrust laws because there were clone manufacturers, there were peripheral manufacturers, there were many computer companies, there were software companies beginning to thrive. And it's a decade later. Right. It paralyzed the company, and it really caused them to be very conservative and very cautious. Because when you're in the middle of antitrust litigation, you don't want to do anything that looks too monopoly-like. Because everyone's watching, and it will be immediately used against you in a court of law, not some hypothetical, well, maybe they'll find this questionable five years from now. It's like, no. They will look at that right now and be like, you see, you see, look at them going into that other field and bullying everybody again. It really made it hard for them to do much. The 70s are kind of a lost decade at IBM. Now, they're still making money. IBM at no point in this time starts hurting financially. That comes much later in the company's history. But it hamstrings their ability to kind of figure out new markets. It hamstrings any ability they might have had to maybe get into the mini computer market. It hamstrings their capability to really upgrade the System 360 in a meaningful way. I really think, in short, it pretty much puts the kibosh on any R&D. It does, to a large degree. I mean, it doesn't come to a halt, but it's very incremental. And, you know, the System 360 was expensive. They spent $5 billion bringing that whole thing together. They had to overcome immense corporate inertia. They had to make divisions of the company that didn't get along with each other get along with each other. It was so bad, it actually drove Tom Watson Jr.'s brother from the company. We haven't talked about Arthur Watson because he's not too important to the story we're telling. But when Tom Watson Sr. was stepping down, basically he made Tom Watson Jr. the CEO of the company, and he made Tom's younger brother, Arthur, the head of World Trade Corporation, which was the international, everything outside the United States that IBM ran. Arthur was subservient to Tom Watson Jr. in the sense that the CEO outranked him, but they were essentially co-equals in that Arthur Watson ran the international business and Tom Watson ran the domestic business. Well, Arthur was brought in from the, the international to run 360 and ended up not being able to overcome some of those hurdles, those interdepartmental uh, animosities. And so Vin Learson, the guy that had gotten R&D going, had to be brought in to also get manufacturing going and sales going and everything else. And Arthur Watson ended up leaving the company. You know, he was being groomed to be Tom Watson Jr.'s successor. And that did not end up happening because he, he left the company over the way he wasn't quite able to handle the 360 thing. So, I mean, that project took an immense toll on IBM. So really all they did in the 1970s was kind of keep ahead of price erosion. They were kind of figuring out Moore's Law in a sense 
before anyone really knew what Moore's Law was. I mean, and they weren't on an 18-month cycle or something like that, but basically, the cheaper and easier it got to manufacture a 360, the easier it was for the clone manufacturers to really undercut them on price, the easier it was for the leasing companies to undercut them on price. So basically, the 1970s was a time when they were figuring out how to stay one step ahead of those companies by upgrading the entire platform at just the right time to make sure that people would all go to the new, more advanced thing that they were doing that was still backwards compatible, (laughs) and then leave all the leasing companies and the clone companies in a lurch. So they did System 370 in the 1970s, which was the successor to the System 360. Same idea, multiple models across a range of price points. But it really wasn't revolutionary in the way 360 was. It didn't really move things forward, other than that it kept the company successful. IBM is never not successful in this period. But, you know, they really missed the boat on mini computers, And they really missed the boat on microcomputers. Though, in all fairness, there really wasn't a boat to miss. Because, of course, we've talked about the early microcomputer market. It was a hobbyist market. Talking about the Altair, the MSI, the Sol 20, the Sphere, all of these computers. It was a hobbyist market. IBM had no interest in that market. Even when the Trinity appeared, the first fully assembled computers, that was a step above a hobbyist market, but it was still kind of an enthusiast market. It was still a casual market. You weren't going to bring a trash 80 into the office. But the problem is, it was inevitable that those computers were going to get sophisticated over time. So IBM really should have been paying attention to that market, even if they weren't ready to, to release a product. And they really weren't. So they were taken completely by surprise and outflanked when a little thing called VisiCalc came along and suddenly a microcomputer had a business purpose because it had spreadsheets. And everyone wants spreadsheets, right? They're beautiful. But on which uh, of the microcomputers did this VisiCalc work on? Because I imagine at this point the microcomputers are really at the same state that IBM was before the 360 and the 370, where the architecture is very much isolated to itself and software is not cross-platform. Well, sure, it's not. But of course, microcomputer platforms are so much simpler platforms that porting from one to another isn't necessarily as big a deal. So uh, VisiCalc is on all the platforms, but it came out on the Apple II first. See, Apple has done a very good job, and I think we've talked about this before in our Trinity episode. They did a very good job of rewriting history. Everyone today, even very good historians that otherwise should know better and otherwise do a very good job, tell the story of Apple and the Apple II dominating the early microcomputer market from the beginning. And it didn't. The TRS-80 ran rings around the Apple II because Radio Shack had better distribution and the computer was way, way cheaper. Sure, it didn't have a fancy bitmap screen with all dim colors, but it was much cheaper, and it had that Radio Shack seal of approval on it. So the TRS-80 was running rings around the Apple II, and even the PET at various times was outselling the Apple II. But then in 1979, the Apple II got VisiCalc. Through a fluke, essentially. The company that released it was primarily in the Commodore market, in the PET market, But when uh, the guy that created VisiCalc came in to demo it, the only computer that they had available for him to work on was an Apple II, which nobody was using because the platform wasn't as popular. 
It was their one Apple II off in the corner. And because of that fluke, VisiCalc was finished for the Apple II first and released on the Apple II first. And that is what started the dominance of the Apple II in the early market. It really wasn't until 1979, 1980 especially, that the Apple II started to get big, and it was because of VisiCalc. Because the spreadsheet was kind of the one major business thing that the mainframe guys had never thought of. There were database programs on mainframe platforms. There were sort of typing programs, word processing programs. Those kind of computers weren't being used primarily for word processing, but the concept existed. And there were even dedicated word processor systems that were kind of halfway between a a typewriter and a full-fledged computer. These were understood concepts. The spreadsheet was completely new. And I just can't imagine what it must have felt like to be an accountant in 1979 when your entire life has always been if you forgot to carry the one and you change one digit in one section of your chart, of your spreadsheet, of your ledger, that's the word I'm looking for, of your ledger, then you're redoing your whole ledger by hand. Which could lead to more mistakes. It very well could. And then you're handed this program, VisiCalc, where you make a change in one cell and the entire rest of your spreadsheet instantaneously updates to take into account the new figure. I mean, you talk about mana from heaven. As far as the financial industry goes, that is mana from heaven. You're talking about reducing, and I'm randomly picking these numbers, but I think it's pretty close to the truth. You're talking about reducing a four-hour operation to 10 minutes. Especially for very large ledgers where you have to probably have multiple checks going on, where you have sort of like the head accountant has this sort of command thing going on and probably has attendants that go and figure out things. And then there's probably multiple checks to see, okay, did you do the math right? Did you do the math right? Okay, does everyone in the department have the math right and all agree that this says this on this ledger? Great. Hand that off. And probably (laughs) even then there's still mistakes. Right. So. This was the true entree of the microcomputer into the business world, and IBM was completely missing the boat. At this time now, just to back up a little bit, Tom Watson Jr., as we talked about, took over the company from his father in 1956. IBM has a mandatory retirement age. That even includes the CEO. Even the CEOs follow it. He's getting close to the mandatory retirement age, And then he suffers a major heart attack, a big one. He survives, but it was pretty serious. He was a fitness freak and a good diet and slender guy. This was entirely kind of a stress-related kind of heart situation here, you know? So he actually ends up stepping down in 1971, just before he would have reached mandatory retirement. Vin Learson the guy we talked about who oversaw the entire deployment of the System 360, takes over from him as CEO, but he too is very near the mandatory retirement age. So he is really just brought in on a temporary basis, and he steps down within a year. He stays on as chairman for another couple of years. He is replaced by a gentleman named Frank Carey. Now, IBM is a sales organization. I mean, they have engineers, they have R&D, they have manufacturing, they have all the stuff that goes into making their products, but it's the sales culture and the sales team, the sales force, the sales philosophy that really drives the company. 
it's no surprise that every CEO of IBM going on, uh, you know, from here and going on for, for a long, long time, all come out of sales. So Frank Carey was the guy that actually sold the System 360. Learson was over the entire thing, sales, R&D, manufacturing, the lot. Frank Carey was in charge of sales on the 360 back in the 1960s. You know, he was smart, he was savvy, and now he's got the top job. He still has the top job when VisiCal kits, when the microcomputer revolution is hitting. He steps down in 81, but he's still there for the first part of this process. Well, he knows IBM's missed the boat, and he's not happy about it. And he's also been really trying to fight the bureaucracy that has crept into IBM over the last decade. Because, you know, as the company gets bigger and bigger and more and more successful, it naturally becomes more bureaucratic. Tom Watson Jr. had deliberately decentralized control of the company by creating a group of group vice presidents that reported to him. Because Watson Sr. had basically had everyone reporting to him, but the company had become so big that was really becoming a problem. So Watson Jr. decentralized to a large degree, which was the right move to do at the time. But now things were getting kind of chaotic again. And so Kerry kind of took a little more of the company in hand again. He tried to consolidate divisions a little more again. And he was also very keen to bypass the IBM bureaucracy when it was necessary to do so. And that was very key to getting the PC done. I don't think without someone like Frank Carey in charge that the PC would have necessarily happened in the way it did and dominated in the way it did. The uh, other thing that's going on here is that IBM is starting to kind of make a play for the low end. They've established a new division, I guess, called the General Services Division that is designed to service the really low end of the market. They kind of split this sales force and manufacturing and R&D and everything else off from the main computer sales force and sick them specifically on the low end of the market. And at this time, the low end means many computers, essentially, not talking microcomputers. It creates some redundancy. Because sometimes the organization that wants the low end of the high-level systems and the high end of the low-level systems is the same company. So you have two sets of sales forces kind of hammering in on the same client. But on the whole, he decides that dividing it in this way is more useful. And it has the added benefit that if IBM is forced to split into multiple companies by the government at the end of antitrust, then they've kind of already got the frameworks in place for what those individual companies can be by separating out the typewriter people into their own place and the low level into their own place and the high level into their own place. They've got that structure ready to go if they need it. So this new division is established in Atlanta, Georgia, of all places. And it also has oversight, I think, of some of the smaller operations that the company has in other parts of the country. One of these that we talked about very briefly when we were talking about our time-sharing episode was a small operation in Rochester, Minnesota, that was primarily devoted to test equipment. All the stuff that you need to build in order to make sure that all the other machines are working properly. So these guys aren't really involved in making computers as such, at least not the big hulking mainframes and mini computers. 
but they're definitely involved in making cheap electronic equipment and looking to maximize the capability of their test equipment while minimizing the price. So these are some of the first guys in the entire mammoth IBM organization that really become aware of the microprocessor. Because early microprocessors, like the 4004 and the 8008 from Intel, are not suited to be the central processing units of real computers. They're either too weak or too slow or too this or too that. But for test equipment, no problem. That's a great cost saver, a great functionality enhancer. So these guys up in Minnesota are starting to play around with this stuff. And one of these engineers that has actually been almost completely written out of the IBM story, you look at most accounts of IBM and of specifically of the IBM PC even, and his name literally does not come up. Any idea why? Yeah, because he kind of left the company to do his own thing, and IBM was very much a, you're an IBM person for life. And so he was essentially blacklisted, <laughs> you know. But this guy uh, is a guy named Lou Egbrecht, the literally unsung hero of the IBM PC. He's from Minnesota, so it's kind of no surprise that he ended up in the Minnesota branch of IBM. He was building test equipment, and he was kind of also surveying the early hobbyist microcomputer market. He was really dialed into processors. He knew what was going on in microprocessors with Intel. And he was starting by 1975 to use Intel microprocessors to make small test computers for all the stuff that they were putting through their paces in Rochester, printers and disk drives and all the other kind of peripherals that they were working with. He uh, got to talking to another couple of guys, two other test engineers in the same facility, Roger Kleinschmidt and Dennis Gibbs. And these three engineers kind of formed the heart of the kind of PC insurgency, microcomputer insurgency inside of IBM. They uh, ended up going to Atlanta together to this general systems division which was just being established at the same time in the mid-1970s. So they end up going to this division in Atlanta. Eggbrecht starts talking up this idea of doing a really cheap computer, a microcomputer. But essentially nobody is very interested because IBM is a sales-driven company. Salesmen make their money on commissions. Salesmen get their bonuses based on meeting their quotas, which are based on how much they sell, which is based on dollar figures. IBM uses a point system, but the point system is derived from dollar figures. They don't want to sell. Anything that sells less than $10,000 basically is a waste of their time because they need to be going out and making the big money and closing the big deals. But there's one guy in Atlanta and this guy's not an unsung hero. This, this guy does get his credit, unlike Egbrecht. There's one guy that Kleinschmidt happens to be rooming with named Bill Lowe. He's a rising IBM star, a very competent manager, who is the vice president of manufacturing of this general systems division in Atlanta. Kleinschmidt, they're rooming together, talks up some of these ideas with Lowe, and Lowe sees the potential there. He starts thinking about what a computer, a low-end computer might look like. And 
he comes up, I mean, he's not an engineer, he doesn't design it, but working with engineers and whatnot, he comes up with the first personal computer, microcomputer system that IBM builds, which was something called the System 23, also known as the Data Master. It was meant to be a small accounting computer. It was built around the Intel 8080 microprocessor, which was the first Intel 8-bit microprocessor that was really powerful enough to be used in a computer. The first Intel 8-bit microprocessor, the 8008, had a lot of problems and was just bog slow, so it wasn't really suitable for a computer, but the 8080 was. So they built this System 23 around the 8080, but the IBM organization is still kind of down on the whole idea. The product doesn't get a lot of support. It's a failure. It's released in 1978, and it just doesn't work out. But then in 1979, VisiCalc happens. So now the big brass at IBM are like, oh my God, we need to be in this market now. Um, I, I might have one of those thingies over here. You want to take a look? <laughs> so Frank Carey, CEO, soon to step down as CEO, but uh, remains chairman for a couple of years after he steps down as CEO starts really beating the drum amongst his executive staff saying, we need a microcomputer, a viable microcomputing platform. And the Data Master is not it. The Data Master has been released. It's a failure. It's not what it needs to be. But we need something now. The problem with IBM is that because it's such a large company, Nothing is simple in IBM. You have to understand, IBM does everything themselves. They build their own CPUs. They build their own memory. They build their own peripherals. Everything in an IBM mainframe is an IBM component produced at an IBM factory by an IBM division. They're not buying hard drives from Seagate. They're making their own. They're not buying memory from Intel or Fairchild. They're making their own. It's amazing they ever allowed this data master to have an Intel microprocessor in it. Everything at IBM is made in-house. The operating system for an IBM mainframe was programmed by an IBM team of programmers. The database that ships with it was programmed by a team of IBM programmers. Any other programs that ship with it was made by a team of IBM programmers. IBM does not source anything externally, and it takes them forever because they're such a large company to bring anything to market. And you see, that's always worked for them in the past for two reasons. First of all, the pace of technological change was slower back then. You really weren't on this Moore's Law cycle yet of everything doubling every 18 months. We're really not in a Moore's Law situation yet. So taking a little time wasn't necessarily a bad thing. And the other thing is, it didn't matter for IBM, generally speaking, if they weren't on the front end of a technological curve, because their sales force was so good and their aftermarket service was so good that they knew that even if they were second to market or third to market, their customers were going to wait for them to come out with the next advance. They weren't just going to suddenly switch over to the hot new competitor with the hot new technology 
just because IBM wasn't quite there yet. So this had never been a problem for IBM before, but in the microcomputer world, which is a fast-changing world in which they are very laid in, this is a problem. If they were to create a computer within IBM, using the normal IBM way, it would take them probably four years. Let's call it 1980 that they start this process. That means not having an IBM PC until 1984. Just think about how different the computers in 1980 were from the computers in 1984. I don't have to think. I played with them. Right. That's an eternity. They were just going to be left in the dust if they did this the regular way. And Bill Lowe knew this. And Frank Carey knew this. So the first thing Bill Lowe actually tries to do is he tries to make a deal with Atari. Atari has a computer. Atari is a leading technology company in the home. They're not a leading computer company, but they're a leading home electronics, consumer electronics company. Bill Lowe's like, well, why don't we put an IBM stamp on your computers that you're doing, and we'll call that the IBM computer? Atari's kind of receptive, and so he takes this idea to Frank Carey, and Carey's like, well, no. I mean, okay, so we're going to have to bend some rules here. But an IBM computer still needs to be an IBM computer. We just cannot take somebody else's complete system made out of whole cloth and call that an IBM computer. So, no, you need to come back to me. I appreciate what you're doing, Low, but you got to come back to me with something else. So he comes up with his plan B, and it comes back to our unsung hero, Lou Egbrecht. By this time, Lou Egbrecht has designed several small computers, mostly just hobbyist stuff. We're not talking about stuff for sale. It's just he's been, you know, building his own stuff for fun. This guy knows how to make a computer. So in July 1980, Lowe returns to the management committee of IBM, Frank Carey, the CEO, John Opel, the president, and a couple of other high-level executives. And he comes up with a in-between idea between what IBM usually does and just taking somebody else's computer. What he said is, we'll design the architecture. We'll program the BIOS, but we'll use off-the-shelf components, other people's processes, other people's memory, other people's hard drives, whatever. We'll use other people's software. We'll license CPM the leading operating system on microcomputer platforms as our OS. We'll commission other outside companies to make other software for our computers. To our big customers, we will sell this thing through our regular sales force. But because microcomputers are also sold to very small businesses, accounts that won't be worth anything to our sales force, we will also sell this computer through major computer retailers like Computerland. Again, something that IBM would never, ever do, sell something outside its own sales force, direct to a customer. There's a lot of resistance to this, but Frank Carey, to his credit, he knows that this is a market IBM needs to be in. So basically, to overcome resistance, he just basically asked Bill Lowe, can you do it in a year? If you can do this in a year, then it creates kind of a compelling reason why we're going to break all of these rules, because this is a market we need to get into right now. 
if you're doing all of this stuff and it takes you two years to do it or three years to do it. We might as well do it the old fashioned way. Exactly. But he asked, can you do it in a year? And Bill Lowe says, yes, we can do this in a year. And so Carrie says, go do it. So this group of about a dozen people, Lowe leading the operation, Egbrecht leading the, uh, the hardware design and you know, other engineers and marketers and whoever else, breaks off from the general systems division in Atlanta and essentially sets up a skunk works in Boca Raton, Florida which again is unlike anything that IBM usually does. This is basically a rogue team, beholden to nobody, answerable only directly, essentially, to the CEO, with a mandate to build a computer using other people's parts and license other people's software. (laughs) Kudos to Kerry for being able to think outside the box. I think most historians today consider Kerry to have been IBM's finest CEO. Both Watsons did brilliant things for the company. So to say that Carey was the best is really saying a lot about him. And part of the reason that made him so is he was willing to break these IBM rules and he was willing to do what needed to be done to get the company where it needed to be. So the team creates a computer around an Intel 8088 processor. The big thing there is that the 8088 is 16-bit. The big computers on the market right now, the Apple II, the Atari computers, the Trash 80, the Commodore computers, the Commodore PET, they are 8-bit computers. So they're leapfrogging by going to a 16-bit processor and a 16-bit architecture. They're going with Intel. You know, at this point, Intel isn't necessarily the gold standard in processors. They got there first. They're well-regarded. But the Zilog Z80 chip is well-regarded. It's an 8-bit processor, but it's well-regarded. Motorola is well-regarded. There are some other chip companies making microprocessors that are really big. They go with Intel because they're already familiar with Intel processors, and Intel's willing to work with them on their requirements. This is what makes Intel Intel, is that they have this business with IBM for the PC. There is a leading operating system company, which I already mentioned, CPM. And there is a leading language provider, provider of computer languages for microcomputing platforms. And that's a little company, and I'm not even being facetious. That's a little company called Microsoft. So they decide that they're going to do the operating system with CPM, and they're going to get their programming languages, their basic and whatever else they want to put on there, whether it's Fortran or COBOL or what have you, from Microsoft. Well, in a very famous story that is pretty well known, so we don't have to spend a lot of time on it. They even made a movie about it. (laughs) Yes. When they come to digital research, first of all, when they get there, the owner of the company, Gary Kildall, isn't there. And so they kind of get putzed around a little bit. Then when Kildall comes back, he decides that he doesn't want to sign their non-disclosure agreement. It's a standard non-disclosure agreement. It's what tech companies do. We're going to share the secrets of what we're doing with you, and we don't want you to listen to our presentation and then run off to our nearest competitor and tell us everything we're doing. So you have to sign this agreement saying that you won't disclose anything we talked about, and if you do, we can sue you to high heaven, and your company will end. He refuses to sign the NDA, and he won't play ball with them. There's differing stories. The IBM people and the digital research people remember it a little differently. But the point of the matter is, Gary Kildall doesn't sign. 
And then Bill Gates, sensing an opportunity, is just like, oh, uh, you know, and we can make your operating system for you, too. And so they're like, great, we'll do that. And, of course, Microsoft can't really make an operating system because they're a language company with very few employees. And IBM needs this, like, right now because they have to have the whole computer done in a year. So they go to Tim Patterson, who has his quick and dirty disk operating system, QDOS. They buy it for, like, $75,000, you know, just take it right from him rename it MS-DOS, and boom, Microsoft is on its way to becoming Microsoft. So they get everything together, and they're able to launch the computer in mid-1981. You know, it's a big success, because IBM is IBM. IBM is the gold standard of the business world. Yeah, some businesses are buying some Apple IIs to run VisiCalc, because nobody else has got a spreadsheet. But now IBM is here. IBM has a computer. A personal computer. The term personal computer was not invented by IBM. They're not the first ones to use that term. But the general term for a small computer at that time was really still microcomputer. And that's because you already had many computers. And so what's smaller than many in terms of, uh, you know, measurements? Micro. You know, they were really primarily still called microcomputers. But now there's the IBM personal computer. Technically as a model number, like the 5051. But nobody calls it that. It's the IBM PC. And this is really where the personal computer nomenclature and the PC nomenclature takes over. We still call them PCs today, unless they're Macs. But that's another story. Anywho, this is a big deal. Businesses start buying this thing in droves. And then the PC in 1983 gets its killer app. VisiCalc is ported, of course, to the PC. So there is VisiCalc available on the PC. At launch. Probably, but I'm not positive about that. I couldn't say that for certain. But if not at launch, then... Very close to. Right, right. But, you know, it's, it's a port of a program that was originally released for other platforms. In 1983, a little company called Lotus Software creates a little program for the PC originally launched natively for the PC, called Lotus 123. A certain segment of our listenership, if you're older, will know of Lotus 123. It is major. It was used by many businesses and universities and government places for a very, very long time, arguably longer than it should have. <laughs> yes. Until the Microsoft Office suite finally gained hegemony over all business and productivity functions, Lotus 123 was the leading spreadsheet. It was not the first company, not the first program to challenge PhysiCalc. So there were two things that made it very successful. First of all, unlike a lot of the other competitors, it hewed very closely to the way PhysiCalc did things. So if you were already using VisiCalc, Lotus123 would feel very familiar the moment you switched over. That was helpful, but the big thing is the 123 in Lotus123. VisiCalc was a spreadsheet, that's what it did. Lotus was a spreadsheet. Number 1. It could then take stuff from your spreadsheets and do charts and graphs. Number 2. And it also had a very simple database integrated into it. Number three. The database in Lotus 123 was not as good as a dedicated database program, 
but it was good enough for a lot of things, and it was integrated with the spreadsheet and the charting and graphing functionality all in one package. So if you're a small business and you need to keep track of inventory, this would work really well. Exactly. So it immediately crushed VisiCalc and immediately rocketed to the top of the market, and it was initially an IBM PC program. So just as VisiCalc was the killer app that uh, launched the Apple II into superstardom, Lotus123 was the killer app that launched the IBM PC into superstardom. And so IBM took over the PC market and lived happily ever after, and we still all buy PCs made by IBM today, as they control 80 to 90% of the market, just as they did in mainframes before. Right? Let me uh, look over at my computer here, just a second. (laughs) I bet it's an IBM. I really bet it's an IBM. Asus? Asus? That's not IBM. No. Let's double check the monitor here. Dell? (laughs) Hmm. Dell? What about this webcam I'm looking at you on? Logitech? Who buys that stuff? (laughs) Uh, I don't know. So obviously something happened there, right? (laughs) Uh, IBM is in fact not in the PC business at all anymore. They hung around until 2005 when they finally sold out to Lenovo, Chinese company. But they were irrelevant in PCs many, 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 many years before they officially exited PCs. Though they did have a reputation for having very robust PCs. The IBM ThinkPad, which is their brand of laptops, were so good and so reliable, they did use them primarily in NASA for being on the space station and on the shuttles and everything because they were just extremely reliable. Oh, sure. I mean, it's an IBM product, right? Mm -hmm. But they lost relevancy, and uh, that'll be kind of the last subject we talk about here. Again, this this story's fairly well known. We don't have to go into super-duper ridiculous depth. But as we said, in order to get to market quickly and in order to make the impact they needed to make right away, IBM used off-the-shelf components, Intel processors, because they very desperately needed an operating system right away. They not only used an outside operating system, but they even allowed Bill Gates the rights to sell that operating system to other computer manufacturers. They did not lock in MS-DOS exclusively. So you ended up in a situation where IBM was not really the company that had the power. Intel, the chip maker, and Microsoft, the OS maker, had the power. And this is what created what's become known as the Wintel Alliance. Intel and Microsoft didn't necessarily always get along with each other either. Alliance, in some cases, a bit of a stretch. But the point is, Intel and Microsoft had within them the capability to kind of dictate where the market would go, not IBM. The one thing that IBM had, the one thing that was standing between IBM and other companies that may want to get in on this sweet PC business, was the BIOS. The BIOS was created at IBM. The BIOS was copyrighted or patented, whatever it is, patented, I think. Locked down in a way that you can't use it easily without IBM's permission. Right. So that was the one thing standing between them and the rest of the world. Well, let me check my BIOS real quick. (laughs) Award BIOS? Darn. 
So what happened is some guys down in Texas saw an opening. Rod Canyon, Jim Harris, and Bill Murto were executives at Texas Instruments, and they decided that they could take on IBM. And so they formed a little company called Compaq. Hmm. And what they decided to do is they decided they wouldn't take on IBM head-on because IBM had the name, it had the recognition in the business world, but they decided that they would get into a niche that IBM was not in yet. Portable computers, what we would call laptops today, though, believe me, what we call laptops today and what they called portable computers back then are very different concepts. Oh, I can show you pictures. (laughs) Portable just meant that it was kind of the size of a small suitcase, so you could carry it places with you. They actually literally had handles that you could carry it around like a suitcase. Exactly. And they had really small monitors. (laughs) Most of that bulk was taken up by the computer itself, not by the monitor, which was teeny tiny. But still, it was portable. They usually had uh, hookups so that you would hook it up to a monitor. Well, well, they have built-in monitors, too. If you wanted a bigger monitor, you could, you know, of course, hook it up to one. But the idea is that you have everything you need in that form factor so that if you're on the road, you can lug it with you and use it in your hotel room or whatever. So they decided that they would make a, a portable computer as their first product because IBM hadn't gotten there yet. And so what they did, and we've talked about this before, is they did clean room engineering. If you flat out copy somebody else's BIOS, then you're violating their patents and you can get in trouble. That's a no-no. But what you can do is what's called clean room engineering. And what that means, and we've discussed this before, but I'll repeat it in this context because it's important is you have person A. Person A is the dirty engineer because person A is the one who figures out exactly how the BIOS works. He dissects the whole thing, he figures out all the calls, and he puts together a complete reproduction of what that BIOS looks like. But person A, our dirty engineer, doesn't share any of that with person B, our clean engineer. Instead. What person A does, and obviously I'm simplifying this for effect, is you know what would be really cool? If you were to, I don't know, make something that does this, 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 and this. Just for the sake of argument, I think that would be really cool. So then person B, or team B, goes and creates essentially identical program that does this, 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 and this through trial and error without ever knowing how that original program worked. So he didn't violate any patents. He came up with the same thing all by himself. That's clean room reverse engineering. It's been upheld by courts. It's the way that you can legally copy someone else's stuff. So they create a PC clone through uh, clean room reverse engineering, and then they release their portable computer. And they make lots of money. And that just opens the floodgates. I mean, they start with a portable computer just because it's a niche IBM's not in. But after that, Compaq and many other companies that spring up, including Dell, start all making their own clones, full-size computers, luggable computers, whatever. And of course, these are the PC compatibles. But at the beginning, IBM is still on top of the market. Just because these clones are out there, IBM is still IBM. 
So even though IBM is not going to be able to have the whole PC market 100% to itself, it's still going to have the lion's share of the PC market. They release an updated version of the PC in 1983, the PC-XT, which is still an 8088 processor, but it's, it's more RAM. It's a faster version of the processor. It's just a general upgrade. That continues to do well. They release another upgrade in 1984, the PC-AT. You know, they're keeping the product at the forefront. They're IBM, so everyone likes them, so they're still the dominant company. But then a couple of really bad things happen. The main thing that happens is that they get pulled back into IBM. So there's a guy I forgot to mention, and this was very bad of me, so I'm going to mention him now. So I said that Bill Lowe started this group down in Boca Raton. But Bill Lowe then actually got a promotion right afterwards. So even though he was the manager that was responsible for initiating the PC project, he did not take it through to completion. He was not the project manager on the PC. That was an individual named Don Estridge. Don Estridge was a very unusual IBM salesman. He just completely bucked company trends. He was not quite as straight-laced. He was not so hierarchically focused. He's what IBM would call a wild duck. Somebody who just didn't quite fit in, but he was very popular, very well-liked, very personable, and very competent. So even though he didn't fit the IBM mold, he was still very influential within the company and still very much able to rise to a certain level within the company. So Don Estridge is actually the guy that got the PC over the finish line. But by 1983, there is a lot of discontent within IBM. By this point, Frank Carey is on his way out. He's already no longer the CEO, and he's about to leave the company as chairman as well. He leaves before the end of 83. Carey's influence is lessened, and his successor, who had been the president, John Opel, is not quite so eager to buck trends and buck best practices at IBM. And so he's willing to listen to all of the other managers who say that this is ridiculous, that this rogue group is able to operate outside of normal protocols, and why are we letting them run amok like this, and we need to bring them back into the fold. So... Opal finally agrees to do this, and they create a new, uh, new division, the Entry-Level Systems Division, which essentially becomes the PC business. Some accounts of IBM state that the Entry-Level Systems Division was created the moment that they went down to Boca Raton, but my understanding is that it was actually here a couple of years later that that happened, and that was kind of formalizing their place in the IBM structure. Once they were formally back in the IBM structure, that meant that they had to start going through the corporate hierarchy. That meant that internal R&D and internal marketing and internal projections and internal manufacturing would all get to have a say on what was going on with products they made. It meant that they could no longer operate as this lean, mean machine operating outside the bounds of IBM structure. So in 1984, they tried to enter the home market the home computer market. Remember, today we, th we don't really think of computers as being segregated between business computers and home computers. But back then, the home computer market was a very specific market for computers under $600 that were targeted more at consumers than businesses. The home computer market was really heating up in this period. Lots of companies were getting into it. 
And so IBM wanted a piece of that action because the IBM PC was really a business-targeted computer. There were some games on it, but it was not a game platform. It had four-color graphics, you know, CGA four-color graphics, which we talked about before. It had a BPPC speaker. It was not a game system. It was not a home system. So they decided to create a system called the PC Junior that would be targeted at home users. It was a noble idea, except it got lost in the IBM hierarchy. Back when they could make their own stuff and do whatever they wanted, they didn't have problems. But the PC Junior, everybody in the company wanted a piece of it. Everybody in the company wanted input into it. So what ended up happening is you had a computer that was ridiculously expensive for what it was. $1,200. Remember, this thing was there, supposed to be their entry into the home computer market, which was, desi- which was designated as the under $600 computer market. And today we have a lot of problems just spending $1,200 on a computer unless you're doing really high-end gaming or something. Yeah. No, this, this was meant to be an under $600 product. It ends up being twice that because it's over-engineered because all these groups get their fingers into it. And it's not 100% compatible with the original IBM PC. Bingo. The absolutely stupidest, most wrong-headed thing they could have ever done. And so crazy. The company that pioneered computer platforms with the System 360. And the interoperability. Exactly. Pioneered interoperability. Created a version of the PC that was not fully compatible with PC software. They made a computer that was way overpriced for the market it was trying to reach, and they ended up putting this ridiculous nonsense baby keyboard on it that was just terrible. Chiclet keyboard. No touch typing. No nothing. The product was a disaster, and it was, it was a disaster because all these people got their hands on it and ruined it. And then, just to add insult to injury to rub salt in the wound, 84 is right when the home computer market is having a big crash, where the price war instigated by Commodore with the Commodore 64 was driving everybody out of business. So it was the worst time to even release a good home computer product. And IBM did not release a good home computer product. This was the downfall of Don Estridge. Don Estridge was technically promoted after this. I mean, he wasn't fired or anything. It's IBM. Back then, even in the 80s, When you joined IBM, you were an IBM lifer. You were there for life. That didn't change until the 1990s. So it's not like he was fired, but he was kind of promoted out of the way to another division. And then very tragically, he actually died in a a plane crash not long after that. Commercial airline crash. That's the end of Don Estridge's involvement. He's kind of promoted out of there, but it's really to take responsibility for the fact that the PC Jr. was a flop, even though a lot of the problems weren't his fault. Bill Lowe comes back in to run the division at that point, because now entry-level systems is a bigger division, and so, you know, that's a good move for him. So Bill Lowe comes back to run it. The other mistake that the company makes that really loses them the market is that they try to reassert their dominance through hardware. In 1985, Intel releases the 386 microprocessor its very first 32-bit microprocessor. So this is another leap in sophistication. IBM sees this as an opportunity to reset the PC business. Because, of course, if you're going from a 16-bit processor to a 32-bit processor, if you want to really take advantage of that 32-bit processor, you have to design a whole new bus. Because, 
you need a 32-bit bus to fully take advantage of a 32-bit processor. So because they're going to have to do a major architecture redesign anyway, what they decide to do is they're going to use a new bus standard. The current bus standard is the ISA standard. It's an acronym. I forget what it stands for, and I don't care. But the ISA is the bus used on the PC and all the PC compatibles. For the PS2, which is what they call the new PC model that they're getting ready to do, and, you know, fun aside on that, you know how back in the day before USB took over everything, you would often plug your mouse and your keyboard into a PS2 port? Yes. Or, in my case, an AT port. Or a serial thing. Exactly. But, you know, PS2, this is where the PS2 standard comes from, is from this, this redesigned here, the PS2 port. So for the IBM PC PS2, they are going to create a new bus, the MCA, microcontrolled architecture, microcontroller architecture, microcontroller architecture, something like that. MCA, microcode architecture, maybe. It doesn't matter. That is going to be software compatible with old software from back in the day, but is not going to be hardware compatible. It's going to be a whole new bus, a whole new hardware standard that is hardware incompatible with what came before. It's going to wipe out all the clones in one fell swoop because they are going to patent the hell out of this thing. Ironclad. Nobody is going to be able to use the bus on the PS2 in a clone. Then they're going to create a new operating system. So what operating system do you think goes with the PS2? OS2. That's right. So they're going to work with Microsoft to create a new operating system. But this operating system is going to be exclusive. There's going to be no selling OS2 to other companies. So through the combination of a new bus and a new operating system, fully and totally ironclad exclusive to IBM, they are going to retake the market, wipe out the clone makers, and march forward to a glorious future of IBM PCs. Let me double check my computer again. Still not IBM. Right. Well, of course, this caused all sorts of upheaval and all sorts of fits with everybody because, you know, even the companies that liked IBM and liked buying IBM didn't necessarily want to be forced to immediately upgrade to everything to keep up to date on what IBM was doing. Of course, Microsoft wasn't happy about this idea of being beholden to IBM, and IBM was very unhappy with Microsoft because word on the street is Microsoft is working on a different operating system called Windows. And so there's great distrust and great animosity between Microsoft and IBM, which completely derails the development of OS2. It finally comes out, but it's a disaster. Meanwhile, Compaq has taken advantage of the situation to become the real kind of leader amongst the clone makers. IBM kind of seeds the technological lead to Compaq, because in 1986, Compaq, not IBM, becomes the first PC maker to release a computer with a 386 processor in it. Now, the bus is still an old ISA 16-bit bus, so this new Compaq computer does not take full advantage of the 386. IBM decided to wait to use the 386 until they could actually take full advantage and harness its full power. But in technology, it doesn't necessarily always matter that you've made best use of a product. The important thing is, is you got there first, because now you've kind of broken the mystique. Now, psychologically, 
IBM is not the same leader it's always been before because Compaq did something before they did. That's actually a pretty big deal. So then Compaq leverages its position as the number one clone maker and the new kind of technology leader in clone makers to promulgate its own new bus for 32-bit processors, EISA, Extended ISA Architecture, which is fully backwards compatible with the ISA standard. Obviously, all of the clone makers immediately embrace EISA, which Compaq, in their great wisdom, is not going to lock anybody out of. Because they realize that as a clone maker, they can't try to create their own walled-off portion of the market. They only survive if the entire concept of clone makers in general survive. So they open up the EISA standard. All the clone makers rush to embrace that. And PS2 is just dead in the water before it even launches. I mean, it does launch in 87. It's a disaster. Nobody wants it. IBM has to make an about-face and get compatible with everybody else again. And that's what really breaks their back. That's kind of the point where the the mystique of nobody gets fired for buying IBM kind of gets broken. It's like pointing out the emperor has no clothes. It's like the spell is broken at that point. It's not like they their business shrivels up and dies overnight. Far from it. But they're no longer the invincible technology, business, sales, leader, indomitable company. It's the beginning of the end. And an interesting side note there especially with OS2 and the whole Microsoft compatible thing and uh, EISA and ISA, if you have a computer that is made during that era, there's actually a setting in the BIOS where you have to specify whether or not you are doing OS2 or other. (laughs) Guess which one was used most of the time? And little young me went, Why is there even this option for OS2? I've never even heard of OS2. Is this something they use in business? I have no clue. I just know turning that on is bad. (laughs) Yeah. Then, of course, very soon after that, you start getting the Far East cloners coming in. Because most of the early clone makers were American companies. Packard Bell and Dell and Gateway and... Compaq. Very soon after that, at the end of the 80s, you get the cheap, the really dirt cheap clones coming in from the Far East. That really drives prices down even more. And, you know, it's kind of in that sense a race to the bottom. And there's really no benefit to being IBM anymore in that kind of market. So IBM share just slowly, 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 slowly erodes until they get out of the business. But obviously, without IBM, we wouldn't have the types of computers we use today. The market would be very different. The architecture would be very different. The major players would be very different. Microsoft wouldn't be what it is today. Intel may not have been what it is today. You can't underestimate the importance of IBM to computing and generally in gaming specifically, which is why we did these couple of episodes here. Even though it's more general technology or general computing history than computer game history, it's still something that is, I think, useful to understand and have that kind of context in the back of your head when you're thinking about how the computer game market developed throughout the 1980s and 1990s. And this will certainly become one of those episodes, sort of like the Trinity and some of the other hardware-focused episodes that we've done in the past that we can point back to now in the future and go, 
And if you want to learn more about what we are referring to here in the context of whatever the game is, refer back to this episode or pair of episodes. Absolutely. That pretty much wraps up IBM and a glorious PC rise and fall, but it's still big blue. It's still out there. Everyone loves it. Sort of, kind of. Oh, yes. And they've, and they've come back. I mean, for a while, they were really going down the tubes. And this is beyond the scope of both this episode and what I've actually personally researched. So not to say too much about it, but they got into cloud computing and computing services in a big way at a key moment. And so now, because of their computer service and cloud computing operations, after some period of difficulty, they are doing very well today. And even though they're not number one in tech anymore, they're still like top five. They are very much still big blue. Well, that leaves us with some entertainment to follow. And that is namely our next episode, which is a special episode, Alex. Do you know why it's a special episode? That's right. It's a very special episode because it's a clip show. No, it's our fourth year anniversary. It is our fourth year anniversary. September 1st. And so we're doing a clip show. Except not really. So uh, longtime listeners will remember that way back in the 50s, uh, 56 specifically, we did what we called an update episode. and Revisions and updates. Revisions and updates. Let me revise my... Speaking of the name of that episode, <laughs> Revisions and Updates, which was basically, you know, I'm, I'm doing my research for my books. I'm harnessing new sources all the time. I'm talking to new people all the time. I'm learning new things all the time. I try to focus our endeavors in this podcast on areas that I've already done a decent amount of research in so that we can tell something resembling a complete story when we do each individual episode. But there's always more to learn, and I'm always learning more things. So about 50-some episodes in, 56 episodes in, we did an update episode, which really provided little updates to about the first 30, 35 episodes, because the episodes after that were so recent I hadn't really learned anything else. Well, it's been a long time, nearly over 40 episodes or whatever, since we've done an update. So, of course, I'm still learning new things. And so it makes sense to kind of revisit that concept again. And it's kind of fitting for our fourth year anniversary as well to be looking back over what we've done in the past. Yeah, next time we're going to do another one of those revisions and updates episodes, just kind of talking briefly about any individual things that I've learned here and there on any topics that we've covered in the past up to the present. Though, obviously, stuff from the last few episodes, there'll, there'll be no changes because we've done them so recently. And this will be leading into our big episode 100 extravaganza. An entire extravaganza of episode. So this is our episode uh, 96 that we're just signing off on right now. The fourth anniversary uh, clip show, very special episode, will be episode 97. And then we are going to do our big three-parter for the year. We tried to do one, three, slash sometimes four when Alex can't shut up, parter every year, just as a more in-depth look. And we decided that the best thing to do in this context with our 100th episode coming up was the 100 most influential video games of all time. We talked about this a little in our 30-minute episode of Crazy, 
So uh, won't go into depth again, but just suffice it to say, we're going to pick 100 games that were influential, not necessarily the best of all time, not necessarily the most famous of all time, but 100 games that we think were particularly important to the evolution of the industry. We're not going to count them down strictly from 100 to 1, but we're going to kind of just look at these 100 games that we think were the most significant, talk a little bit about each one, talk a little bit about the history, and spread that out over three episodes, culminating in Big 100. So that's what you can look forward to for the next two months. Give or take. Two months of planning on They Create Worlds. And remember, we will be recording that live August 24th at 4 p.m. UTC, 11 a.m. Central. So feel free to check out our Twitch channel, TCW Podcast, in order to catch that live. That's right. So if you miss it and then catch one of the live streams of me editing, then there you go. You can get round two. Absolutely. And then, of course, they will be released in three-part podcast form for posterity. And your entertainment. Yes. All right. Well, that pretty much sums up everything. We will see you next time on our anniversary. Four years of They Create Worlds with revisions and updates to Electric Boogaloo. I don't get the reference, but I hope other people do. (laughs) We'll see you next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com, where we have linked to some of the things that we discussed in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The People and Companies That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be pre-ordered through CRC Press at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com forward slash song forward slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rolla Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. 